Hello and welcome to another Paro seminar. I don't know what number this is. We must, are we in double figures yet? Uh, we've definitely done more than, the, more than half a dozen. Uh, what I want to look at today is the theme of desire. Um, I've actually just come back from a festival I ran in Belfast where I was looking at the work of C.S. Lewis. I was trying to critically engage with some of his ideas. And uh, that was an incredibly rewarding experience for me. Uh, he's a Belfast guy, and um, there was 55 of us from all over the world. And uh, we went to this hotel where he had his honeymoon with joy. And we spent a few days, mostly music and art and reflection, but also we did some kind of critical philosophical engagement with his work. And one of the things that I discovered from reading his books was this short story that he wrote. Um, now, it's called the first and last short story of C.S. Lewis because he wrote it very early on in his career, uh, but he came to, back to it um, at the end of his life. And it was actually only published in its final form, I think in 1985, which is like two decades after he died. And there's a whole fascinating story around this short story. Uh, you know, people thought it was a forgery. Um, he never published it. People wondered why he hadn't published it. And, you know, there's a whole story about how it finally got discovered um, and eventually published. And actually, it is published in this book called Light um, by Charlie Starr. Now, don't let the cover fool you. This is the worst cover of a book I've ever seen. It looks like kind of teenage fiction, like a, or a fan fiction for the Twilight series or something. It's terrible. Um, but it has the short story in it and also a lot of the detective work, a lot of the background and also interpretations. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read the story because it's only three pages long. Um, and then we're going to do a close reading of it. And I'm going to use it as a jumping off point for talking about desire, looking at religious fanaticism and looking at uh, what can be called a passion for the sublime or a passion for the impossible. And I want to connect all of this, of course, with um, parotheology and uh, an attempt to explore what um, I think the church at its best should be attempting to do. Okay, so here, here goes. This is story time with Peter. Light. Uh, it was originally, by the way, published, I think, in 1977 under the title The Man Born Blind, uh, but he updated it a little bit. Bless us, said Anne. There's 11 o'clock and you're nearly asleep, Robin. She rose with a bustle of familiar noises, bundling her spools and her little cardboard boxes into the work basket. Come on, Lazy Bones, she added. You want to be nice and fresh for your first walk tomorrow. Well, that reminds me, said Robin, and then he stopped. He had approached the subject three times already since his operation, once to the doctor, once to the nurse, and once before to Anne herself. And each time, something seemed to have gone wrong. Now he felt unreasonably nervous. I, um, I suppose, he mumbled, there'll be lots of light out there when we go for that walk tomorrow. You mean uh, it'll be lighter out of doors? Well, yes, of course, but I really must say that I think this is a very light house. This room now, we've had the sun in it all afternoon. The sun, it makes it hot, said Robin tentatively. What are you talking about, said Anne. 
And that was what Robin couldn't understand. Why they all sounded so angry or frightened whenever he got near to the real question. It was as if they thought he was mad. I mean, he said, well, look here, dear. I've been wanting to ask you something ever since I got back from the nursing home. I expect it'll sound silly to you, but things must be different to a chap who's been blind all his life, mustn't they? It's all so new to me. As soon as I heard there was a chance of getting my sight back, well, I looked forward to it. The last thing I thought before the operation was light, wondering what it would be like. Then all those days afterwards, before they took the bandages off, wondering, waiting. But of course, darling, that's only natural. But then, then, and his, his voice shook a little, why don't I, I mean, where is the light? His three weeks of sight had not yet taught him to read the expression of her face, but he knew by her voice the warm wave of muddled, frightened affection that had swelled up in her as she said, why don't we just go to bed, dear? We can talk about all this in the morning. You know you're just tired now. No, he said. I've got to have this out. You've got to tell me. I want to know. Know what, Robin? Ask me anything you like, but there's nothing to worry about. Your sight is perfectly all right now. You're cured. Very well, then. Tell me this. Is there light in this room at present? Of course there is, Robin. Then where is it? Why, it's all around us. Well, can you see it? Yes, but really, Robin, dear. But then why can't I? But Robin, you can. You can see me, can't you? And the mantelpiece, and the table, and... The... Well, that's what drives me mad. That's the sort of thing you all say. I want to see light. Are you the light? Is the mantelpiece light? Is light only another name for all these other things? Oh, said Anne, I see what you mean. You're asking about the light. Well, that's it there, hanging from the ceiling with the pink shade. Then why did you tell me that the light was all around us? Darling, I mean, that's what gives the light. The light comes from there. Then where is the light itself? You see, you just won't say. Nobody will say. You tell me there's light here and light there, that this is in the light, that that is in the light, and people get in one another's light. But you won't point it out. You won't show me the light itself. If none of you know what light is, just say so. If there's no such thing, if it was all just a fairy tale all along, say so. If the operation was a failure and I still can't see what other people see, Tell me, I can take that. It's the secrecy that I can't stand. You're all like conspirators. Why the devil? But at this point, Anne began to cry. And Robin apologized. He comforted her. And then they went to bed. This conversation made him more than a little cautious. Clearly, it was never going to be any use asking about light. Either there was no such thing, or else he was all the time making some appalling mistake. If he was not careful, he'd find himself in the hands of doctors again, psychotherapists as likely as not. When Anne took him out for his walk the next day, he was on his guard. He kept on saying, oh, it's lovely, 
all so beautiful. Let me just drink it in. And that satisfied her. And he knew enough now to know that none of the things he saw could possibly be light. They were, as Anne obviously expressed to him, only fields or cows or grass or the sun or trees or a quarry. Nothing could be attempted until he was able to go for walks on his own. About six weeks went by before he first did so. During that time, he had passed through every fluctuation of hope and despair. But the steady trend of his feelings was towards an increasing and presently a tormenting desire. He no longer concealed from himself the fact that the visible world was basically a disappointment. He realized that he had never really wanted it, except for the sake of light. And that unless somewhere amongst them, he could find that pure stream and bathe his eyes in it and drink it in, all the clouds and colors and animals and what Anne called the views were of no account. On the morning when he first went out alone, there was a mist. But he had met mist before and this did not trouble him. He walked out over the railway bridge and up the steep hill and then along the field path that skirted the lip of the quarry. Anne had taken him there a few days before to show him the view. She had said, what a lovely light there is on the hills over there. That clue he was now following, though with very faint hope. He was almost certain by now that she knew no more about light than he did. He was beginning to suspect that most of the unblind were in the same position. What one heard among them was probably mere parrot-like repetition of a rumour. A rumour concerning something which the very few, the great prophets and the great poets, had really seen and known. Somewhere it must exist. Perhaps not in England. Perhaps only rare deposits of it existed, far away to the east in deserts or in high mountains. In that case, he would never see it. But if he did, ah yes, if he did, he would dive into its very heart, give all himself away to it. Drink, 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 drink it up until he died drinking. The mist thinned rapidly. Trees brightened out of it. Birds began singing. He found he was hot. His shadow lay before him each moment blacker and more distinct. That violent yellow thing, the sun, which he could never really see properly, stared at him on his left hand. He pulled the brim of his hat lower over his eyes, blinking. If only I could see any light, he muttered. At that moment, he caught sight of a young man who was standing with his legs wide apart on the edge of the cliff singing and making jabs with some slender instrument at a complicated two-legged object about the same height as himself. If Robin had had more experience, he would have recognized this as a canvas on an easel. As it was, his eyes and those of the wild-looking stranger met so unexpectedly that Robin blurted out, what are you doing? Before he had time to be self-conscious. Doing, said the stranger with a certain light-hearted savagery. Doing? <laughs> I'm trying to catch the light if you must know. Good God, said Robin, so am I. Oh, you know too then, do you, said the man. Then, almost vindictively, they're all fools, you know. How many of them come out to paint on a day like this? 
How many will ever see it, even if you show it to them? And yet this is the only sort of day when you can see light, solid light, light you could drink in a cup or swim in. Look at it, he pointed into the quarry. The fog was at death grips with the sun, but not a stone on the quarry floor was yet visible. The bath of vapour shone like white metal and unfolded itself in ever-widening spirals towards them. Do you see that? shouted the violent stranger. There's light for you if you like it. A second later, the expression on the painter's face changed. Here, he cried, are you mad? The grab he made at Robin was too late. Already he was alone on the path. From a new made and rapidly vanishing rift in the fog beneath him, there came up no cry, but only a sound so sharp and definite that you could hardly expect it to have been made by the fall of anything so soft as a human body. That and the momentary rattling of a dislodged stone. Okay, so this is um, very unlike Lewis. It sounds more like a Jean-Paul Sartre or a Camus story than something penned by Lewis. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's very beautiful. I think it captures something uh, of Lewis's understanding of the absolute. Um, and I want to talk about that briefly and then connect it with uh, some of my own work. Uh, it, in some respects, this story can be seen as a critique of his friend, Owen Barfield. Uh, Owen Barfield, he called um, was it a, his kind of a type of second friend. He talks about a first friend as someone who is so like you that when you meet them, you have so much in common and you feel this sense that you're, you're not alone. Like if you go to a party and you're talking to somebody and you find out that you, know, you like the same obscure music, the same movies, the same people, and it feels like you know, you've got a kindred spirit. But then Lewis says the second type of friendship is a friendship that's kind of the opposite. It's where you meet somebody and you're immediately at loggerheads. Uh, you both have read all the same stuff. Um, Lewis says, you know, your opponent has read all the same books, but has got all the wrong ideas from them. And that uh, you end up realizing that they think exactly the same about you. And uh, he, he said his relationship with Owen Barfield was like that. A, a deep friendship that was forged in the fires of debate and discussion and disagreement. And he called this debate and discussion the great war that he had with Barfield. Uh, Barfield was an anthroposophist, so he was uh, taken in by the writings of uh, Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, and uh, so interested in kind of occultic, Christian occultic literature. And there's a number of ways to interpret the story, but uh, one of the easiest ways, I think, is to see it as potentially a critique of Barfield and his attempt to uh, outline what his problem with anthroposophy is or was at the time of writing it. Um, so basically, if you've got three characters, you've got Anne, you've got the painter, and you've got Robin. Uh, Anne, you could say, represents a naturalist or a kind of materialist. And uh, for, for C.S. Lewis, you know, the, the naturalist or the materialist is someone who thinks that the universe is a closed system of cause and effect, uh, a non-rational system that gives rise through um, this chain of cause and effect to everything that we experience. 
uh, it's not just kind of evolution as a scientific theory, it's evolutionism as a, a metaphysical set of beliefs. Um, so Am doesn't understand the question. Whenever this guy Robin gets his sight back, he's going, like, where is the light? For Am, the light is just in the world. It's everywhere. Uh, in one sense, you could think of light as reason. I know C.S. Lewis, often his critique of realism was that realism could not account for rationality. A non-rational system would not give birth to rationality. Uh, and if it did, we would never know. Um, he, had, he had a famous argument that he, he had in lots of places, but in his book Miracles in chapter three, um, where he argued that uh, a system that says the universe came from non-rational sources um, is a rational argument, but you couldn't trust the argument if the argument came from non-rational sources. And so this is his critique of realism. Uh, interestingly, he had a famous debate with a great philosopher, Elizabeth Anscombe, in the early 40s at the Oxford Society, the Socratic Society in Oxford, and he famously lost the debate. Uh, and it was a debate about this very, this very thing. Um, I'd like to talk about that someday, but I'm not going to do it now. He did change his chapter, by the way. If you, if you compare and contrast the first edition of Miracles with the second edition, you'll see that after the debate with Anscombe, he changed his argument. But, you know, for Lewis, uh, a naturalist um, just thinks that reason, um, uh, the absolute, all of that is just in the world. There is nothing outside and beyond it. And you see with this character, Anne, that she doesn't even understand the question. She, doesn't, she gets confused and frustrated by Robin's asking what light is. You know, light is just there. It's just part of the world. Then you have the painter. Uh, the painter could be seen in one reading as, as his friend Barfield, or as somebody who says you can, through contemplation, grasp the sublime, grasp the absolute. You can understand the ground of being, the ground out of which everything arises. Uh, in the story, it's obviously through painting, but uh, you know, it's an analogy. It could be through, you know, you can experience God, for example, through um, a mystical encounter or through rational kind of like reflection. Um, and what's interesting here is that so Robin is dissatisfied with the world. He feels that there is something else called light and he can't find it. And everything else seems mundane in, in, in relation to this thing called light that he can't see. And of course, he's making this mistake. He thinks that light is something that you see, but rather light is that which allows you to see. So he's, he's pursuing this impossible task, trying to find the source of all being, the source of the universe. Um, and, you know, Anne is just saying, well, that doesn't make any sense. Stop asking the question. Just enjoy your life. But then he meets somebody who says, yes, I, there it is. We can capture it. We can grasp the absolute. And Robin is kind of like captured by this and steps off the quarry to step into the light and dies, is killed. Now this is fascinating because it's kind of, um, it's a form of psychosis. Uh, psychosis is the, the idea that you, know, you can, a psychotic is certain, they grasp something completely. Like a psychotic knows that there's a deep state, for example, behind the chaos of politics, there's an underlying kind of system that, that controls everything. They, they, they have 
this intuition, this certainty about it, and everything points to it. Or, you know, the FBI are putting, you know, uh, bugs in, into fillings through dentists. Whatever it is, if you meet a psychotic person, they can have this sense of some underlying force, someone in the background, and they have the knowledge of that, and they're frustrated by everybody else who just can't see it. So for this guy, Robin, he is captured by this religious fanatic, basically. This person, he says, I have the secret. Like, you can, you can know the absolute. You can know the source. And this leads to a form of death or psychic death. Um, it's funny because I remember uh, my friends who do the Deconstructionist website, they had a guy on, um, I think his name is Keller, Tim Keller. And uh, Keller said something like, well, you know, all this, all this idea of doubting, you know, as if doubting is something that is, you know, we should all do. Some people don't doubt at all. Some people have certainty. Well, C.S. Lewis's response to that, which is also a psychoanalytic response, is yes, some people are certain. And that's even worse. <laughs> the, the, the tyranny of certainty is a type of psychic death. Uh, in a private letter, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote that, you know, this occultic, idea that you can see behind the curtain leads to the ambulance, uh, the asylum, or the graveyard. So I think so. <laughs> a great way of saying it is like when you're caught up in certainty, you're going to end up in an ambulance, an asylum, or the graveyard. And in this short story, you see this, this person who thinks they, they can grasp the sun, they can step into the sun. What, real, what really happens is they just have an absolute encounter with reality. They die. Um, now, what Lewis is attempting to say here, I think very beautifully, is that there is a space between what light illuminates and light itself, and we live in that space. And any attempt to grasp the, what's called in philosophy, the thing in itself, that which lies outside the phenomenal world, that which lies beyond sense experience, that which lies beyond our everyday experience of the world, that the attempt to grasp that, if anyone says, I have it, well, they're lying, they're mad, they're either crazy or they're, they're a liar, um, and following them will end up leading to some sort of destruction, psychic destruction. Um, and that we actually, the, Robin's problem was, he, he didn't know how to live in the space of the, of the in-between. Now, this, is, this sounds a lot like Kant, Immanuel Kant. Uh, Immanuel Kant famously talked about uh, the world as we experience it, which is the phenomenal world, and the noumenal world, which is the thing in itself, the world beyond our experience, beyond our concepts, beyond our ability to grasp. So Kant had this distinction, and he said that any philosophy that attempts to get to the thing in itself ends up in what's called antinomies, ends up in contradictions, ends up tied up in knots. You know, whether you kind of go freedom is at the core of the universe or determinism. Uh, when you follow the argument, both seem equally reasonable, uh, and yet both seem contradictory. Uh, and so, you know, Kant is the one who basically begins to critique traditional metaphysics, because he says that the human attempt to reach the noumenal always results in, I say, in knots and antagonisms and contradictions. But of course, the response to that is kind of like what George Barclay would say, the great Irish idealist philosopher. And by the way, C.S. Lewis 
uh, was closest philosophically to George Barclay. Um, for George Barclay, you know, the idea of a thing in itself that you cannot talk about um, is kind of absurd because you can't talk about it. So how do you know it's there? Um, all you're saying is there's the phenomenal world that we experience and then uh, there's something out there. But Barclay, his argument is, well, there's, there's no good reason um, to believe that there is something out there in the world that we can't experience. Now, George Barclay was a, a religious man um, and uh, I think he was a bishop. And so he had a, he, he had a very fascinating argument um, for the existence of God um, that comes out of this, which we won't look at now, uh, but definitely worth, worth looking at. Um, Barclay's you know, not so much having a revival, but there's certain, whenever you read George Barclay, some of his work reminds you of what's going on in like contemporary physics. So, you know, some physicists, I think, find Barclay interesting because um, his, his uh, philosophy, um, it, it coheres quite nicely with some of the stuff that we're discovering at the quantum level. But George Barclay's thing is, yeah, don't talk about the thing in itself. It's, you, can't, you, can't, you can't reach it, so how do you even know it's there? Um, Kant's uh, response to this, or Kant's solution, is in what's called the sublime. Uh, for Kant, the sublime is a very particular form of human experience. Uh, it's a very special form of human experience. The sublime is basically... It's when you experience something in the world that blows your mind. Uh, often, like it's that's why I like to go back to Ireland. Actually, is you know I'm caught up in the city life in America, and I love that. But when I go back to Ireland and I walk through a forest, and the light is hitting the forest in a certain way, and it just looks beautiful, you can have an experience of the sublime. And what it is is something in the natural world so saturates you so kind of like overloads you that it it opens up this space between what exists and the transcendent now for Kant the sublime does not give you the transcendent weirdly what the sublime does is it tells you that what you're experiencing is not the transcendent so you have an experience of something absolutely beautiful and it both brings to mind something greater than what you're seeing but in a negative way as in it doesn't give you that it just basically it just basically helps you experience that there might be something beyond the phenomenal realm that there's something that that you cannot grasp so a sublime object for a person is an object that does that this might be similar to you know if you love somebody and they they've died or you can't be with them uh, but you maybe find a picture of that person and you the picture draws to mind that person but also that they're absent it draws to mind something but something that isn't there and so it's a it's a really nice feeling but it's also a melancholy feeling it's also a sad feeling when that happens you feel great because you're kind of like ah oh, thinking about that person but also you're sad because that person isn't there and the sublime is this mixture of pleasure and pain. Lacan would call it jouissance, which describes a pleasurable suffering. It's kind of like where, you know, this beautiful painting that you're looking at, it calls to mind something beyond itself, which is pleasurable, but it doesn't give you that. So it's painful. <laughs> um, 
And that's, that's Kant's solution is in a sense, the thing in itself is never available to us, but there are experiences in life that open up the space between the phenomenal and the noumenal. And that's, that's the sublime and that's where we dwell. Now for Lewis, this is very similar to his notion of joy. Uh, whenever in Surprised by Joy, Lewis writes of joy, it's of this experience of something that you do not have, but it's a pleasurable experience. It's an experience of lack that enlivens. So whereas happiness, you know, you enjoy, enjoy something, you're, you're happy because you're on holiday or something like that. Happiness is enjoying something you have, but joy is enjoying something you don't have. It, joy is an experience of opening up a space between what exists and what is beyond all of that. And for Lewis, to be human is to be sensitive to that space. And his rejection of naturalism, humanism, materialism is basically for him. Um, those crude, a crude form of materialism is a sense of closing one's ears to that space, that sublime. Um, and then religious fanaticism is an attempt to say, we can put the sublime into an experience or into a ritual or into a set of words. Now, this connects um, with a number of interesting contemporary thinkers. Uh, one of them is Jacques Derrida. Uh, Derrida writes beautifully of the difference between what he calls messianisms and the messianic. Uh, messianisms are religions, um, but not just religions, secular things as well. But we'll take Jew the Jewish tradition first because Derrida was Jewish. A, messi, a, messi, a messianic religion is a religion that is oriented to the future. There is something to come, something that is better. Uh, God is still to arrive to fix the world. An apocalypse still has to occur. And so various religions have utopias. You know, there's something in the future where everything will be transformed, made new, our desires will be fulfilled, our tears will be wiped away, our suffering removed. So Derrida talks about that. Those are messianisms. And then he says all of these messianisms have a messianic structure, which in what he means by that is they all have a longing for something that isn't there, that hasn't yet arrived. And Derrida explores what could be called a religion of, of, the me, of messianism, of uh, the messianic, which is an openness always to something that is to come. So for Derrida, he says justice, love, democracy. These words all promise something that isn't here. What we have is a form of democracy, but the democracy is not complete there's still a democracy to come. In that term, there is a promise for something that we haven't yet got. Uh, in justice, we can say, well, there's, there's a certain amount of justice in the world, but we'll also say that justice is still to arrive. There's still so much injustice. Um, we never quite grasp justice. We can never quite make it fully present in the world. And for Derrida, the sensitive individual is the one who lives in the space between the justice that is here and the justice that is to come. Not confusing one with the other. When you confuse the two, problems arise. This is in Buddhism, there's a beautiful saying, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Which is kind of a way of saying that 
the Buddha is always still to arrive. The Buddha is, as soon as some, the Buddha is there, it's not the Buddha. As soon as someone says justice is here, we have the kingdom, we have freedom, we know what democracy is, some kind of like LA hippie cult or something that says we, we, have, the, we, have, we have freedom, we have liberty, this is what it looks like. Um, at that point, get away, run away from that, kill that in yourself, because that will lead to all sorts of problems. You have to keep that space open. Uh, Paul Tillich wrote about this as well in a different way where he talked about faith as ultimate concern. To have faith is to um, give yourself absolutely to something in the world uh, beyond reasonable expectations, beyond pleasure and suffering, to give yourself absolutely, even your life, to your child or to the person you love. But then Tillich said that faith can be uh, demonic, deranged, perverse, when it is lost completely in what is. Fertilic faith is when you embrace a cause or a person, but the transcendent element of that person or that cause. So you embrace, say, you love somebody, but, but part of the love is who that person is becoming, what your relationship is becoming, what it can be in the future. There is this openness as soon as faith, for example, as soon as faith says, for my country, right or wrong, I will die. That's a form of faith because absolute commitment to your country, you will die for your country. But this patriotism is demonic if, in a sense, um, it's completely connected to your country as it is in its current form. But if you say, I love my country, and my country stands for democracy and freedom and justice, uh, and so anytime my government uh, stands against those, I will fight it. Then that for Tillich is a form of like, uh, you know, a proper healthy faith because it's still committed to something concrete in the world, but it's connected to the transcendent element of that, that which opens it up to a future, opens it up to more possibilities. Um, and then Lacan has a version of this as well. For Lacan, he talks about, he says at one stage uh, in his uh, seminar on ethics, he says, do not give way on your desire. Do not yield to your desire. Um, and it's a hard um, idea to get your head around, but one way of thinking about it is um, Lacan is saying, we desire lots of things in the world, but don't ever think that the things that you desire in the world are the ultimate thing that you desire. The ultimate thing that you desire is lost for, for Lacan. It's something you can never grasp. Part of being a human being is experiencing a, a loss, something that has been taken away. And various things stand, stand in for that. But nothing is the thing that will ultimately satisfy your desire. And the moment that you stop, on some object, some person or something and say, that's what I desire, then all of these psychic problems result. Uh, you know, either you continually sabotage that relationship because you, you know, every time you get it, it's not going to work. Um, you know, I know a couple who have had a very passionate love affair for years, but have never had sex because sex is the thing that has become the, the ultimate unconsciously so by constantly 
kind of like having a very sexual relationship, but not having sex. Uh, it's kind of weirdly uh, a very mundane act is like the thing. If they ever did have sex, you know, it would rob, they have sex with other people, but not th those two. They, they come and go in their relationship. They meet, they, they, there's all things, but they've always held that back. So it creates the fantasy that, oh my goodness, if we had that, that's the thing that would be amazing. So you either don't get these things or you get them and yeah, you realize that they, they don't work. So if something in the world stands in for the ultimate desire, you've closed the gap and I say lots of problems result. All of these thinkers in different ways are saying that to be human is to live in that space between to be wary of a religious fanatic. A religious fanatic is a person who says, we have the answer. They are the one who, like the painter, says we've got it. And people who follow those fanatics will end up walking off the quarry cliff. But then the alternative isn't for Lewis, then, you know, like Anne, Robin's wife, you just go, listen, you know, life's just everywhere, don't worry about it, just get on with your everyday life. The alternative is a passion for the impossible or a passion for the sublime where you, you, you love and you desire in the world, but you always realize that that desire will always be in some way unfulfilled, in some way will not grasp what you really desire, that the absolute source of all is, is somehow at, at a distance, but you enjoy it, you embrace it. In parotheology, the difference then is with kind of regular kind of confessional churches, trying to keep that space open, trying to not close that space. And for people who that space has been closed for, opening it up. For those people who have suffered from the tyranny of certainty and satisfaction, um, to try to very gradually free them from that so that they can embrace not having and the enjoyment of, of, of living in the light without grasping the light. Uh, one other thing I'd like to say on this, um, although it takes us a lot deeper, is that for Kant the, the, and, for, and for Lewis, the absolute, uh, that which lies behind everything, that which we desire more than everything else, is out there. We just never grasp it. But for someone like Lacan uh, or Hegel, uh, this very inability to grasp the absolute is the absolute. The very fracturing of our world, the very experience of living in this space between and enjoying that, which is what Robin couldn't do. He couldn't enjoy that space. He couldn't find a way to find fulfillment in it. Um, for someone like Hegel um, and, and say Lacan, that experience is actually getting to the very heart of reality itself. And it's not that we're then, you know, always in poverty, never quite getting to the source of all, but that in this experience of absence, we are standing in the sight of the absolute. Uh, this is why someone like Shizek loves uh, the crucifixion experience in the sense of in the crucifixion, Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, God experiences this, this gap. And so when we experience this gap, from the Christian point of view, you are in the sight of God because God experiences the lack. So when you experience the lack, you stand in the very sight of God. The very experience of the loss of everything is the experience. 
um, that kind of opens us up, humanizes us, saves us. But, you know, regardless of, of that little bit, what I like about this story and what I think is insightful about it is it is a warning that, you know, not to go with a kind of a crude form of modern kind of new atheism. Um, and by the way, there's a very powerful form of atheism that I really like. And if you do atheism for Lent, you'll see that the 19th century atheism and um, some 20th century atheism. But that very crude atheism that seems to just close its ears to um, kind of anything that is the in itself on one side is problematic. On the other side, kind of uh, a type of religious fanaticism that says we can grasp the absolute, we can grasp the sublime, we can, or the, the source of the sublime. Um, these are the two things to avoid. But the alternative is a passion for the sublime, a passion for the impossible, where one embraces the world and embraces life while always keeping that space open. Um, and that's what I kind of I mean by doubt, uh, complexity and unknowing. In some senses, it, these are just terms for keeping that space open, for keeping, and this is what like Simone Weil, I think, means when she talks about gravity and grace. The world of gravity, I've talked about this before, but the world of gravity is the world of natural laws and physical laws and why things fall when you drop them, why we repay hatred with hatred. It's just the world in its kind of crude form. And then she talks about grace. And grace isn't another world, but grace is what breaks open the world of gravity. That means that we don't repay violence with violence, but rather violence with love. That breaks open our paying back hatred with hatred. Um, and, and so in a way, grace is what kind of sensitizes us to a, another world, but it's not another world. It's not a two-tier universe. It's not Kantian, the phenomenal world, the luminal world. It's that there is one world, and that world um, is split, and we experience, therefore, this, um, this living in the in-between that, that we have to grasp and embrace. Okay, there is uh, some thoughts on uh, C.S. Lewis's story, Light. Um, if you've got any questions or comments, uh, I'm going to see if you've got, written anything. Uh, let's see. I don't see any questions. So perhaps you just completely understand and agree with everything I've said. Um, I, could, uh, I could also make you participants and you could actually physically talk. Maybe that would be too much for now, but I'm going to start doing that in future Paris seminars, so I'll, I'll do the next one. Here's a question. How could Robin's faith and passion for the light have left the human space open since he's ignorant? Okay, sorry, Gary, let me read this again. How could Robin's faith and passion for the light have left the human space open since he is ignorant of the nature of light? Okay, if I've got you right, Gary, is it? Yeah, let me check, yep. Uh, you're saying that, yes, yeah, so Robin's ignorant of the nature of light. What Robin is doing is he thinks that light is something that's in the world, which, by the way, both Anne and the painter in different ways agree with. Anne thinks, you know, the absolute or um, the source that we desire is just, it's just, it doesn't make, the question doesn't make sense. 
Um, but if, if you want to see light, it's everywhere. And then the painter is the one who says, yes, it is beyond. It is out there, but you can capture it in the right uh, moment, in the right atmosphere, at the right time of day. You know, you can grasp it, which is the anthroposophist for, for Lewis. Um, and yeah, Robin misunderstands. That's exactly right. So yeah, that's what you're saying. He misunderstands this. That's why he is, I mean, Lewis is probably saying like, Robin is the, is the searcher, the seeker. You know, you talk about seeker-sensitive churches. Robin is the one who's out there looking for something. Um, and the problem is that he therefore is susceptible to a, to a community that says, this is the answer, right? Um, so you're saying that, and then you're, so are you asking maybe then, how does Robin get freed from this? Um, I'm going to make your question into that. I'm not sure if you mean that or not, but I think you might. Um, this is exactly what paro-theology is attempting to do. It's attempting to, those people who are seeking, who are open up, they have experience of the sublime. They have an experience that makes them feel not at home in the world, right? Which all of us feel. Uh, Heidegger talks about this a lot. Like, it, sometimes it's just like a gentle breeze. You hardly notice it, but there's something in your life. Something happens and it just opens you up to, to the idea that there's something more. Um, to it hitting you like a hurricane, right? And that, which often is whenever someone maybe dies or you face your own finitude or whatever it is. There are these moments where you are temporarily opened up like Robin. But parotheology is trying to create communities where that, where that person is able to enjoy that space that they're in, not try to close it down. That's it. It's like, it's in one sense, parotheology is an attempt to keep that space open and to help people enjoy that space. So very concretely, because that sounds abstract, but very concretely, it means that if you'll see in parotheology, there's a celebration of doubt, ambiguity, and complexity. Uh, in, in confessional churches, those are sometimes either negative things, so doubt is something to try to overcome, or it's a test, or it's a, just a natural limitation that one day will be fixed in the next life. So either you're reading apologetics, trying to get rid of it, or you're thinking, well, I just have to live with it. But in power theology, it goes with the mystical route, which is to celebrate the doubt, not try to either get rid of it or merely tolerate it, but to actually show that doubt is, is, a, is something that that generates is generative. Just like a scientist, they're always doubting, asking questions, and, and that actually progresses knowledge. That moves things forward. So in, in parotheology, the idea is not to say close down doubt give, by giving certainty, but rather to find ways to let the person enjoy and find fulfillment in the, in the opening of the space. So the problem with Robin is that it's exactly a seeker-sensitive church. A seeker-sensitive church is where there's people out there who think there's something else. And, you know, we'll give them the answer. But, and that's what happens with Rob. And he kind of goes into a church that says, we have the answer, we can give it to you. And it results in his death. Uh, but in response for me, a paratheological community is a community that says, come on in and learn how to uh, galvanize that, um, that, dissatisfaction and that sense that you're not at home in the world, being in the world but not of it, 
let, let turn that into a fuel of transformation, turn that into something affirmative, into something beautiful, turn that negative into a positive. That's why, I, you know, you've, you may have heard me talk about the difference between ra- unraveling and raveling. To unravel is to come apart, but to ravel means exactly the same as to unravel. It also means to come apart, to pull apart, but it doesn't have the negative un. Instead of unraveling, you're raveling. Uh, oh yeah, Gary says I was right, thank goodness. Oh, there's Micah. Um, what does one do with the response to this space between that does not feel uplifting or hopeful? Yeah, um, and I may, have, I may have kind of answered that a little bit since you wrote that, but that, that's the challenge for Robin. He is exactly experiencing that space as negative and bad. And that is the first response. That's always, not always, but basically always, uh, when our political, religious, and cultural structures begin to fragment and we begin to feel not at home in the world, that is, in philosophy, that's called the death of God. Nietzsche called it the death of God. It is the breakdown of your symbolic world. It is, you know, the guarantor of meaning, the, the, that which holds your world together, the glue that holds everything in place. When that begins to dissolve, it is basically, by definition, a terrifying experience. It's one that we want to fight. So that's why I think, that's why I would say we all have to go through the death of God. There is no getting to the other side without this being uh, depressing and difficult. But so the, but the challenge then is to, and this is why, you know, great art and great thinking and great music can do this. You know, like a musician who, I know you're a musician, um, who is able to take that melancholy and that suffering and somehow turn it into something beautiful. That's why I love that Kierkegaard quote. I've used it a lot where he says, a poet is someone who screams in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. Um, so like the poet's, takes that suffering and turns it into something beautiful. And actually, as we listen to the poet, that helps us find something beautiful in that, something productive. Um, and I know you're asking a very practical question, how do you do it? But in one sense, it's difficult because for some people it will be poetry. For some people it will be nature. For some people it will be a relationship. But I do feel that uh, parotheology and its technology is trying to create communities where this is systematized. It happens everywhere in the world. It happens in all sorts of ways. Uh, wakes are a form of doing that. A wake is a death ritual where you take the death of somebody, but you know you celebrate it. You you know in Ireland you drink together, you tell stories, you laugh. It's this pleasurable suffering where you recall the death of the person, and it's wonderful and happy and joyful but it's also tinged with melancholy and pain because they're not there, they're gone. And, but the wake is in a sense an attempt to unify those two things so that you don't just run off, forget it, try to be happy by going to parties, getting drunk, whatever, or you don't just wallow in self-pity and, and sadness. A wake is a weird sense of trying to combine these two experiences um, so that uh, it's uplifting and transformative. And the idea is then you carry that dead person with you. They, they are alive in your memory and also in your life. And, and, and in that, hopefully make you a better person. In some way, you know, you carry something of the best of them in you. 
Jim, hey, oh, the questions are coming now. Mark, sorry. Uh, in the story, the painter seemed to be speaking metaphorically or artistically about light, while Roger took him literally. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think that Lewis believes that religion at its best are speaking artistically while congregations take it literally? Yeah, Mark, I think that's, that's a really good insight because the, the, the artist is like, he's caught up in saying, there's the light, can you, you know, you could drink it. But as soon as he steps off the quarry edge, he screams, he cries out, tries to grab the guy. He realizes that he's mad. Um, and, and of course, he hasn't gone off the quarry himself. And I, I do think this is a great, for me, it's a great analogy, like the way you're saying, is that a lot of churches, they, they don't expect you to take it seriously. This is the sad thing, but they'll, they'll talk about it. Like you'll have a, a church where the minister talks with absolute certainty and conviction. But behind closed doors, they're full of doubts and unknowing, but they don't express it at the front. And then what they're surprised by is if somebody takes what they're saying absolutely seriously. If you have enough faith, your child will be healed. You know, if sickness will disappear if you just have the faith. And then someone in the church doesn't call an ambulance when their child's sick because they have so much faith that they, they don't need an ambulance and the child dies. And this is traumatic for the church. Uh, because not because they, they didn't take it seriously enough, but because the, the congregation or this member of the congregation took what was said literally. And so that for me is a problem um, that actually, that most evangelical churches, for example, in Nashville, mega churches, the, the, the worship teams are often hard guns. They're just brought in to sing music there. Everybody knows that they don't believe what they're singing. They're just hard because they're good musicians. Um, but we pretend that it's not the case. And what I want to do and what I, I'm trying to do in the, the, the liturgy of parotheology is to, to bring that out, uh, to not be like the painter who kind of says all this stuff, gets caught up in the, you know, like a, a, a preacher who gets so caught up in the passion that, you know, they're saying, you know, you can lift deadly snakes in your hand and you won't die. Um, but they, then somebody does it and they get stung, you know, they get bitten. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good insight. Um, and uh, it also shows the difference for me between liberal liturgy sometimes where God, no one believes in the type of God that they're singing about or that's talked about in the liturgy, but the liturgy still affirms it. And then if somebody comes in, they naively think that's what everybody believes. Um, and a, a, a radical liturgy, which tries to bring the doubt and the unknowing right into the heart of the liturgy itself. Jim. Perhaps Rollin misunderstood how light manifests materially. He knew it was more than what illuminates, but he misunderstood the painter and thought the painter's comments about the light being found in the fog or mist was the substance of the light, struggling to enunciate. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, that connects with what Mark just said. So I think that's similar is like Robin. Well, Robin misunderstood, but the painter, you know, without reading too much into it, but the painter definitely... Um, was not beneficial. So Robin had exactly, Jim, had that misunderstanding, but the problem for me is that the painter, if he'd met somebody who was able to draw him into what Lewis would say, like an understanding that you no know, light isn't something that you see, light is what illuminates. You live in the space between, and, you know, and kind of helps, help Robin see that. That would have, been, that would have saved him. Um, so yeah, the problem is that that the painter just didn't know how to handle it. He misunderstood. And again, coming back to 
the religious world, I think a lot of ministers, they think their job is to give certainty. They think their job is to get rid of doubt. Even if they, they don't think it themselves, they kind of think that's their, that's their rule. And they think it's helpful. I get this all the time. People say to me, yeah, but what if someone's dying, you know, and they just want certainty or someone's, someone's died that they love and they just want an answer? You know, why the pastoral thing is to give that to them. The pastoral thing isn't to break them open, but the pastoral response is to give them the comfort, the certainty, the security. But in this story, it's like, no, 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 that, that can sound like a beautiful thing to do. But in the long term, it's not the pastoral thing. That's why psychoanalysts don't do it. I mean, if it worked, psychotherapists and psychoanalysts would do that. But they always help their, their analyzants to enter into the struggle rather than to close it down. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. And then Gary, uh, so if Robin encounters someone else besides Anne and the painter, he might not have not felt at home like Robin. Uh, he might not have followed his passion for light, which is the only possible thing that was real for him to go over the cliff to the absolute. So he said, yeah, so in this, so if Robin encounters someone else, yeah, besides Anne and the painter, uh, he might not have followed his passion for light. Yeah, now the thing I would say is that in a sense, what I want to say is that you can have the passion for light. What Lacan is saying and Derrida in his way and Tillich and Lewis, they're all in different ways and there are differences which we haven't gone too deeply into, but in different ways they're saying that yes, have passion for the light. Don't lose that passion for the light. Like that's what Anne kind of represents in some ways that the there's no real passion for the light. But don't get into a fanaticism, which is the painter. What, what they're all arguing is, in a, in a different way, is you actually should be like the painter, have that level of passion, but acknowledging that your passion for the real or your passion for the impossible or your passion sparked by the sublime um, is a passion for the impossible. It's a passion for something that cannot be uh, sated. And in fact, your hunger is what satisfies. That's the key. I mean, and all of this is the wound heals. The hunger is what satisfies you. It is the, the, um, the dryness that, gives, that, that you're able to drink. And it sounds obviously paradoxical, but that's, that's the move is, yes, have a passion for the, this, this um, thing in itself, but... But, the, but realize that, that it's actually the, the, unf, the lack of fulfillment is, is where the pleasure is. I, I did a talk on this, um, I think a few months ago, uh, looking at Todd McGowan's book, uh, Capitalism and Desire. And I would really recommend that book as a psychoanalytic way of understanding this and how it works in politics. But in that book, he basically argues that, that we live in a society where we're always being told that the thing that will make us happy is just over the horizon. If we get enough money, if we work hard enough, if we marry the right person, and we never quite get it. But Todd McGowan says the problem is not, um, is the problem is that our, we enjoy not getting it. That's where the enjoyment is. Just like a gambler, they're not addicted to winning, they're addicted to losing, because every time you lose, it makes the winning seem even more magical and fantastic. If you won all the time, yeah, you'd get money, but you get bored of the gambling, because it's ultimately a very boring thing, right? It's like you know, moving chips around, or pulling a lever, pressing buttons. Uh, it's actually the losing, the continual losing, that, that, that keeps you enslaved to the fantasy. And 
So what, what Todd McGowan is arguing for is that, in a sense, what we need is, reali- is a realization that we enjoy not getting what we desire. But that very understanding breaks us free from the contemporary political world. It, can, it breaks us free from scapegoating. It breaks us free from this frenetic thing. What we do is we find a certain peace with our lack, and that brings us into a different form of life. Um, I, I, I feel like I didn't do the book justice at all there because it's a complicated and interesting book. But if you get the vague, the vague structure, I, as I say, I've got a talk on it. I did a few months ago. But the vague stru- structure is um, we have a passion for the light, but we realize, existentially realize that the light is not, not impossible to get just because life gets in the way, but because in a sense... It's, it's ungettable in principle. And so we're, we enjoy the drivenness always into the future that, that never is satisfied. Um, one example is when Derrida talks about the law and justice. The law is the written form of justice. The law is what we write down in order to understand what justice is. But every time we write it down, it's not just. We have to rethink it. We have to re, rewrite it. We have to engage with it differently as new things happen but without the law we'd have no way of talking about justice so the law is not justice but the law negatively testifies to justice justice is never going to be got it's that pa- so we have a passion for justice but the but with the realization that every time we grasp it we have not grasped justice we've we've just we've got it by the coattails we've just missed it um, and, and and we have to learn to love that All right. Listen, guys, thank you so much. I'm so glad that I was able to share that story with you because it really is a story that I love. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I came to really appreciate something of Lewis amidst all of my disagreements, you know, you know something of his, his passion and his intelligence. And I think it's caught, a lot of that's caught in the short story. So appreciate you checking in. I'm going to upload this later. And um, uh, on the Facebook page, if you want to kind of have a conversation about these ideas, Please do so. Take care.